You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on the 12th day of July, 2013. Welcome to episode 275 of the Corbett Report podcast, Solutions, Boycotts, and Bycotts. Well, the basic premise of today's episode is so remarkably simple that even a child could follow the, the logic behind it. So let's think of a case example. Let's imagine a morbidly obese man who goes to eat at McDonald's every single day. And at a certain point, he realizes that there may be some linkage between the crap that he's ingesting at McDonald's and his morbid obesity. And he becomes outraged at McDonald's. Well, I can't believe this corporation has been feeding me this crap all this time. This is at least partially why I'm so horribly obese. I'm really angry at McDonald's. Well, this man has two ways to direct his anger. The first would be to start some sort of political campaign, start some awareness campaign, start some lobbying campaign to try to get McDonald's to change its menu so that they would start feeding him healthier options. Well, we should we should make sure that, that McDonald's isn't allowed to sell bad food to me. We should make sure that they can only sell healthy food so that no matter how much I eat there, I will become a healthy, fit individual. Or the person can simply stop eating crap at McDonald's. I don't think, again, it takes very much contemplation to understand which of those two methods is more effective. And yet when it comes to the idea of fighting the New World Order that we talk about here on the podcast regularly, the concept of actually taking personal responsibility for what we can affect at our own local level still seems to fly over the heads of many people. Actually, I don't think it really does. That's a cop-out. It doesn't fly over their heads. They just don't want to do it because taking personal responsibilities for one's actions is never a fun thing to do. So there are a lot of people who will make excuses for why they don't need to stop feeding the beast that is enslaving them. What they really need to do is make sure that the government will come in and regulate that beast or that they'll, uh, they'll ask the corporations on bended knee, oh, please, pretty please, stop enslaving us. No, the the personal responsibility that we all have to take is, I think, one of the key cruxes of this entire issue. And again, a child could understand this logic. So let's let's take a look at an extremely effective presentation of this this particular piece of reasoning that I I'd often turn back to. It's from a piece that Tony Court Cartolucci wrote on Land Destroyer Report last year in October. And I think he frames the, uh, the entire uh, position in a very, very eloquent way. So let's turn to this article called Self-Sufficiency, a Local Solution to a Global Problem. Quote, When thinking about solutions, many are quick to cite organizing a protest and taking to the streets. Let's for a moment consider the mechanics of a protest, what it might accomplish, and what it may leave to be desired. Take Glenn Beck's disingenuous 2010 Restoring Honor event in Washington, D.C., it drew thousands of honest, well-intentioned people from all over the United States. Indeed, thousands of people filled up their Fortune 500-made cars with gas from Fortune 500 oil companies, drove countless miles, stopping along the way at Fortune 500 fast food restaurants, stayed at Fortune 500-run hotels, and stocked up on supplies purchased at Fortune 500 Walmart. They slaked their thirst under the hot August sun with cans of Fortune 500 Pepsi and Coke, and at the end of the day, they drove home paid their Fortune 500 cable subscriptions to watch their Fortune 500 media reports, most likely on News Corporation's Fox News, a Council on Foreign Relations corporate member. At best, all a protest will lead to, while we are so hopelessly dependent on this system, is a round of musical chairs inside the political arena, with perhaps superficial concessions made to the people. The vector sum, however, will still be decidedly in favor of the global corporate financier oligarchy. If we understand that the fundamental problem facing not only America, but the entire world, is a global corporate financier oligarchy that has criminally consolidated their wealth by liberalizing their own activities while strangling ours through regulations, taxes, and laws, we should then understand why events like Beck's Restoring Our Honor are not only fruitless, but in fact counterproductive. 
We should also realize that any activity we commit ourselves to must be directed at this corporate financier oligarchy rather than the governments they have co-opted and positioned as buffers between themselves and the masses. While people understand something is wrong and recognize the necessity to do something, figuring out what that something should be becomes incredibly difficult when so few understand how power really works and how to strip it away from the oligarchs that have criminally consolidated it. End quote. I think that's a perfect summary of the futility of some of the, these, these situations, and I think we could extrapolate this to a lot of other examples. In fact, we could look at something much more recent. We could look at the NSA spying scandal, which finally, for whatever reason, has broken through to the public consciousness and gotten a lot of people upset about these invasions of privacy, so that people are now, well, willing, willing to get, get out there on the streets and rally and protest to, to make some, everything better. And uh, so, for example, we saw the, the Restore the Fourth movement coming along, trying to uh, organize people for rallies. But again, let's look at it through that framework that Cartolucci just uh, laid out there in his article. So people will uh, hop on their Windows uh, PCs in order to log into their Facebook accounts to post information and try to rally people to come out and plead with the government to pretty please restore uh, the Fourth Amendment, which is a natural God-given human right and nothing to do with government whatsoever. And uh, then they'll go to those protests and use their smartphones, their Apple smartphones, to record videos and photos of the uh, the event, which they will then immediately post to Twitter. And just like that, they have already used the NSA spying grid surveillance system in uh, seven different ways just from those few actions alone. And they have fed themselves directly into the system that they claim to be opposing. Once again, it's like the fat man raging at McDonald's and trying to get them to offer healthier options rather than simply stop eating at McDonald's. Well, again, simply stop using the technology and stop paying, more importantly, stop paying for the technology from the companies that are admittedly in bed with the government and admittedly cooperating in this surveillance system. So this is the crux of today's episode. Rather than lecturing at you about the theory of of this practice, why don't we actually get into the nitty-gritty and the nuts and bolts? Because that's what we're really here for at the end of the day anyway. And in that regard, we've gotten, uh, we've lined up a lot of very interesting interviews with some very interesting people in the last few days at CorbettReport.com. So I hope you are following the interviews to uh, RSS feed at Corbett Report so that you can follow these conversations as they're happening. But why don't we go through a few of these conversations with uh, guests that are talking about specific ways that you can withdraw yourself from feeding into this corporate oligarchical system, which is that fascistic uh, link in the chain that is part of the, the overall system that's enslaving us. And again, it is easier to do than you might think. For example, I just mentioned uh, people logging onto their Windows PCs to use Facebook to organize rallies and what have you. Uh, this is a fundamental part of this whole surveillance grid that most people don't even even give a second's thought to, but it is a fundamental link in this chain. It is the operating system that we are all using in order to uh, to access our own files on our own computers, and the fact that those operating systems themselves are compromised. And again, this is not something that uh, that we have to speculate about. This is not something that that um, is 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 uh, up up in the air or something that we uh, we don't know about in specific detail. In fact, we do know that, for example, Microsoft Windows has been compromised by the NSA for decades. We can go back to 1999, specifically to an article from Telopolis, which was uh, talking about how NSA access was built into Windows. And that notes that, quote, a careless mistake by Microsoft programmers has revealed that special access codes prepared by the U.S. National Security Agency have been secretly built into Windows. The NSA access system is built into every version of the Windows operating system now in use, except early releases of Windows 95 and its predecessors. The discovery comes close on the heels of the revelations earlier this year that another U.S. software giant, Lotus, had built an NSA help information trapdoor into its note system, and that security functions on other software systems had been deliberately crippled. End quote. I would exhort you to go and read that full uh, article so that you can find out more of the specifics about that NSA backdoor access to through Windows. But again, we've known for at least 14 years, 14 years now, going back to at least Microsoft Windows 95, that the NSA has had backdoor access to your computer 
because of the Windows operating system itself, which is such a basic part of computers that most people who are not tech-savvy or tech-inclined won't even give a second's thought to it. Of course it's a Windows PC. What other possibilities are there? Well, in that regard, we had a very interesting conversation recently with Tim Kilkenny of Revelations Radio News about uh, about this open-source software movement that uh, that is is the the sort of the hidden solution to all of this that's been there all along but very few people have taken the time to familiarize themselves with and this is uh talking of course about linux operating systems also open source software that uh, that provides a counter to this propi- proprietary software for people who are confused about those terms i'll ask you to go and listen to the full conversation but why don't we just listen to a portion of that conversation with tim kilkenny where we were talking about how easy it is these days to switch over to an open source software environment. Sure, I did an experiment about a year or two ago and just ran nothing but open source, everything. I ran open source operating system, open source software. And it's actually, in this day and age, much easier than people probably think. Uh, Linux has this reputation for, you know, you have to go in the terminal and enter these lines of code to tell your computer what to do. Not anymore. In this day and age, uh, there are some really easy ways to switch to open source software. Uh, the most popular of which is Ubuntu. And uh, it, just like you said, you can go to a website, which is Ubuntu.com, and you can get a live version of the CD. You download it. It's an ISO. And you just make it a bootable CD. Uh, if you're on a Mac system, you just right-click. If, if you're on a, a Windows 7, I think there is an option where you can make it a bootable CD. You download it, you shut your computer off, you turn it back on, and you can actually try out the interface just with, you know, from the CD and, you know, see what, you know, you would like, you know, if you would like it. And there's all kinds of videos on uh, on YouTube, people uh, sitting their parents or grandparents down to try Windows 8 and then to try Ubuntu or Linux Mint or one of these. And Windows 8, by far and away, is the hardest one to use. I mean, this is a great time to switch to open source because, obviously, the NSA, but as well as Windows 8 being a dog of a system, I do have it uh, installed in a partition on, on this computer, and it's, it's, it's got a, quite a learning curve, uh, not near as much as something like Ubuntu, which, uh, after trying it out, you can, you can simply hit install this to your disk, and then you can actually follow the instructions fairly straightforward. You can dual boot where you can want, if you can hold on to your Windows and still have uh, Linux or still have Ubuntu, or you can just overwrite the whole thing. And uh, you, another, you can get screenshots, you can watch videos that show how to do this. It's quite easy these days. And in my opinion, uh, a prettier, I mean, I'm a, you know, I have an eye for these things and it's just a prettier software. It's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of different uh, pluses to it. It's no longer, you know, entering a bunch of code to be able to run your computer. Well, of course, that's the uh, the operating system, which, of course, is, is kind of the base, as we were saying, for all the applications. But then there are the actual applications that people want to use themselves, the actual programs. Um, and it, when it comes to that, it can be much more difficult to, to be to be open source, only open source, but but not as difficult again as people might might believe. And for people who are wedded to things like Microsoft Office, um, mm-hmm. th- it's really important to understand that there are things like OpenOffice, which I use myself. Why on earth would you pay Microsoft for a program which is equally as good and equally as proficient in a completely open source format that's uh, freely available for download? So let's talk about some of those alternatives that people can be using. Absolutely. Well, I actually just found this website today, James. I want to tell you about it. It's uh, prism-break.org. And prismbreak.org is a website that shows all of the software needs that you might have or uses that you might have. On one side and on the right side, it has a open source, free and open source version of those. So, uh, of course, you mentioned uh, the, the number one thing people say is, oh, my gosh, I can't do without Microsoft Office. You know, that's the, that's, that's the one. And, and for casual users, even, that's the most important thing that, that, that they have, something they can, you know, look at Word documents or Excel in. Uh, OpenOffice is pretty good. It was recently purchased by Oracle and whatnot. Uh, a bunch of the developers uh, jumped ship and made LibreOffice, L-I-B-R-E, Office, which is, of course, the, I think it's Latin for Liberty. Um, that's a that's a really good one. It tie, it's uh, really good, really good software. Um, there's a few others. If you are if you need Photoshop, there's of course GIMP, which I know you use. Uh, if you need a, Adobe Illustrator, there's Inkscape. If you need um, 
Microsoft Outlook. There's, of course, Thunderbird. If you need an audio editor, I know there's Audacity. I think you also use that. And then there's even a uh, video. There's a couple of video uh, editors. I don't have them offhand, but there is a four-dimensional or a... Uh, a 3D editor called Blender, and it's just as powerful as any software you could possibly use. So there are open source alternatives to these things. Uh, they're free, <laughs> therefore they don't have a lot of advertisements. People don't know about them. They have to go out and seek them. You're not going to see an ad for Ubuntu, you know, when you're watching the Super Bowl or whatnot. Uh, these things, you just have to seek them out, but there are large numbers of communities who are dedicated to these things, who, who, who put their whole lives into running these things. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we've uh, talked about on my show, and I know you talk about it a lot, is hackers and whether you know, they work for the government, work for the, but they, they all generally use Linux. They're developing software. They're using uh, uh, you know, open source software because it's the, it's the safest. Once again, Tim Kilkenny of Revelations Radio News. And once again, I would hope you would listen to that full conversation where we talk in more length and detail about open source software, open source operating systems, what that really means, why it's important. But I hope you at least get the, the gist of this, that again, if we are paying Microsoft and Apple and these other companies so that they can give us their spy-laden backdoor uh, booby-trapped software, then we are a part of the system. We are actively co complicit and cooperating in the system that is enslaving us. So again, we have to understand our personal responsibility in this, and the very least that each and every one of us can do is to remove our personal responsibility by removing our support, monetary and otherwise, from these structures. Another good case in point example while we're on the subject of IT is Google. Because of course, as everyone knows, it's one thing to have physical security of your own computer in terms of your own operating system and your own software, but once you log onto the internet, you start interfacing with all sorts of, well, shady and creepy customers like, uh, like Google and Facebook and others. And again, it's important to understand that there is a documented, admitted, 100% on-the-record secret relationship between Google and the NSA, which is officially acknowledged, although the federal district courts have ruled that you, the American people, do not have uh, the right to know any details about that relationship. Yes, Google and the NSA are in bed, but we can't tell you anything about it. So, again, this is not speculation. When you use Google, you are directly giving your information to the NSA. You might as well be handing it to them on a silver platter. And once again, you are actively cooperating and complicit in the feeding of the beast that you claim to be raging against every single time you use Google or Facebook or any of these other insider globalists, Fortune 500, CFR, Bilderberg-connected organizations. So, and, and again, Bill Gates uh, is, is a, a Bilderberg attendee and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So again, the question becomes, well, Google is just, it, Google means to search. It's become a verb in the English language. Surely it is the only option available. And some people might know of some alternatives like Yahoo or Bing, but I'm here today to tell you that no, there are other examples. So once again, I often talk about it. I'll talk about it again. I personally use startpage.com for my searching. Startpage.com has a wealth of privacy settings and options and, uh, and, and a policy that guarantees that they do not record IP addresses and that they do not record any information about any of the searches that are conducted on their systems. This is absolutely light years, 100% different from any other search engine that's out there really fundamentally. And I had the honor recently of talking to the U.S. media relations uh, spokesperson for startpage.com, none other than Dr. Catherine Albrecht, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with for her excellent work exposing the RFID uh, enslavement system, the biometric control grid that's coming in through RFID and customer loyalty cards and all of that. She's written, for example, Spy Chips, uh, which has also been widely circulated online through interviews and lectures and documentaries and the like. So I hope that people are already familiar with Dr. Albrecht. She's also on the board with start startpage.com because when she first found out about uh, the, start the, the search engines and how they were 
are logging and detailing, cataloging and databasing and tracking all of the information on all of their users, she got freaked out. She scoured the world looking for a search engine that didn't do that and found xquick.com that's based in the Netherlands and thus not subject to any US laws or any Patriot Act or anything of that sort. And uh, xquick has expanded into StartPage, which is a kind of sister search engine, xquick being a meta search engine, and StartPage basically scraping Google for Google results, but uh, not giving any of your data or information to Google. So that's the long and short of StartPage. And earlier uh, this morning for me here in Japan, I had the chance to talk to Dr. Albrecht about StartPage and some of the features that it offers people in terms of stopping the uh, the 100% Panopticon surveillance uh, spying that Google is 100% in conjunction with the NSA doing on everyone. So XClick, which has been around since 1999, is what's called a meta search engine. Uh, we take your search query. I now work for the company, by the way. I fell so much in love with them. I said, I got, <laughs> I've got to help you. So um, we, we take your search query, and we submit it to multiple search engines from our servers, so they never see you. We get the results, and then through a proprietary algorithm, we quickly, in a, you know, in a matter of milliseconds, pull out the best results and then serve them to you. With StartPage, what, what we discovered was that people really wanted the Google results, that, that they didn't want meta search results from other search engines. They really liked what Google was giving them. And, you know, that's no surprise. Google is the best search engine on planet Earth, bar none. I don't think anybody questions that. So what we did was we created the StartPage search engine, which is a private portal to access Google results. So when you go to StartPage, you'll see a little search box just like you would see it at Google or Bing. You type in your search term. We take your search term. We strip out anything that would identify you. We submit it ourselves from our servers to Google. We get the answers. We strip out any tracking cookies or other content that would come with it. We serve you the pure results, and then we delete all records of your visit. So we erase your IP address. We serve you the results through an SSL uh, HTTPS encrypted link so no one can eavesdrop on your search. And at the end of the day, we have no records on who's been on our website, what IP addresses have visited us, what search terms were searched for. It's all just white clean. It's a blank slate. And so even if, God forbid, we, we were to receive a, a subpoena that we had to respond to, or if we got hacked, it's never happened, but it happened to Google when the Chinese government hacked uh, Google servers to get into dissidents' uh, email over in China. Um, so it's happened to others. It's never happened to us. But if it did, there would, there would absolutely be nothing in our service to obtain. So there's multiple layers of protection. Um, you get the protection of getting the results without the tracking cookies. Google never sees you. We make no record of who you are. You're encrypted, so even your ISP is unable to see they can see that you've connected with us, but they can't see what you're submitting back and forth. And then we've got a really cool additional feature, which is not available really any, anywhere else on the Internet. And that is that when you perform a private search with either StartPage or XQuick, at the bottom of the search, underneath the search term, is a link that says View by XQuick Proxy. And what that means is let's say that when I was looking up information about breast cancer, that one of the links was, for example, the National Institutes of Health. Well, if you go to the NIH website, there are, I think it's anywhere from like six to ten different tracking cookies by third-party providers that are tacked on to some of these health websites. There was just a report out on that uh, yesterday. So when you go there, there's all this garbage attached to it. And if I, if I search for that on Start Page and I get a link to whatever health website and I click it, I leave the protection of Start Page and I'm just on the Wild West Internet landing on that page. But what we've done is we've built in a way for you to not only do your searches privately, but to actually view the content of the websites that you find privately through our proxy. So when you click View by XQuick Proxy, we go out to the National Institutes of Health page that you want to see for you. We load all of their content onto our servers, and then we show it to you through our servers privately. So if there are any third-party tracking cookies, if there's any malware or spyware, if there's any, um, you know, really anything that would compromise your privacy, that gets stripped out as we serve you the private results. And then once again, we delete all records of who's seen what and what pages were served. 
So it's it's actually pretty cool, and it's a pretty thorough. Uh, privacy protection. You could actually do almost all of your web surfing through it and never be seen by anybody. Dr. Catherine Albrecht, CatherineAlbrecht.com, talking about StartPage.com. And if you go on in that interview, which again is posted in its entirety on CorbettReport.com, you can listen uh, to details about StartMail.com, which will be being launched this fall. So you can find out more information about StartMail, a webmail service that not only doesn't read your email, as every other webmail service does explicitly as state in their privacy um, policies that they do. Uh, it, it, they can't even possibly read your email because it uses PGP encryption and you're the only person who has that PGP password. So at any rate, you can find out more about startmail.com in that interview and you can go to startmail.com to, to find more information generally. But let's move along. Of course, the IT side of this is only one tiny piece of this larger puzzle that we're looking at here, again, week in and week out. Another key part of this that we keep coming back to is, once again, you do at this point still have the freedom to choose what you do and don't put in your mouth when you're choosing food for your family. And this is an exceptionally important uh, piece of the, the puzzle because, again, a a sickened and defeated population is one that is easily controlled and colonized. And I think this is something that's been well understood for for centuries, if not millennia, and certainly has been made explicit in such things as uh, Henry Kissinger's 1974 National Security Memorandum 200, in which he argued for food as a weapon, etc. This is something that, again, has been long talked about and long understood in globalist elite circles, that food can be used as a weapon against the people. And of course, we are seeing that very specifically with the biotech agenda rolling out through Monsanto and uh, and Dow Chemicals and all of these these uh, uh, monstrosities that they're trying to release, not only the GMOs, but of course also the all the processed foods and processed chemical crap that's being inserted into our foods. So this again is another point where if you are paying the companies that are creating this for the privilege of eating their crap that is making you sick, then at least in a small measure, you are responsible for that. It is personal responsibility. And it can be exceptionally daunting to think about trying to get off of the, uh, the chemical processed food, uh, big food, industrial um, complex treadmill, which they, so many of us are caught on because, well, I just don't have time to make anything for my family. I'm just going to go to the supermarket and pick something up or pick up some drive through on the way home. And that'll have to do. It's only food. What, what does it matter? Well, of course you are what you eat and, uh, and you are literally ingesting the chemicals that are being made in these factories that are making people sick in record numbers with autoimmune diseases, skyrocketing cancer, all of these horrible health effects, which are exactly uh, coming in line with the the rise of processed foods in the Western world. And I think we can tie the obesity epidemic into this and the high fructose corn syrup and all of this other chemical crap that we're being laden with. So once again, the question is, well, what can we personally do about it? And once again, the answer is you can stop paying the money to the corporations that are making this crap, and you can start paying money to local for farmers and others who are producing locally produced food that you can shake their hand and look in their eye and uh, know what you're putting on your plate with some degree of certainty. And uh, again, this is a very large task, and it, it's not something that you're likely to be able to change 100% overnight, but it is something that people can at least make baby steps towards. And once again, I'm no paragon of virtue on this. Uh, we still buy a lot of our foods from supermarkets, but uh, but we are growing more and more at home. We're getting more from family members who grow foods. We go more and more to farmers markets and local vegetable shops and the like. So we are trying to change our heating, eating habits as well. And it's something that I think everyone should be actively engaged in, especially now that they really are flooding the food supply with all sorts of genetically engineered monstrosities. So once again, rather than simply lecturing on the utility for this, why don't we talk about the process of how to actually go about doing that? And that's something that I had the chance to talk to James Evan Pilato, of course, of MediaMonarchy.com, co-host of New World Next Week, and his girlfriend Cassie Cohn, who joined me uh, after recording this week's New World Next Week, which, by the way, has only been released in audio form because of some technical difficulties on the video side. But after that conversation, we were able to record a conversation between the three of us talking about what James and Cassie did and how they, they managed to help get off of that big food system and are now sourcing much more of their food locally and organically. I was really, really scared when I left the grocery store because actually New Seasons gave us a 20% discount 
which made a huge difference, especially on foods that are already perceived to be more expensive. Uh, how, how do we do it? That being said, um, this is another area where my mom is definitely the expert. My mom uh, lives, they, they budget their food um, on my dad's retirement. So that's kind of, it's pretty minimal. And she manages to eat organic and, and build a menu for two. And the biggest, biggest, most important component, and we actually need to get better at this, is planning ahead. Little, little obvious things that all good moms will tell you. Look at, you know, look at the sales. Um, look at your bulk beans for protein. Um, you know, you don't have to have like meats are much more expensive. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we've started, and it's and it's fun, and I think like anything, once you start to get into it and do it a little bit, it starts to become a little more addictive. I have more basil growing right now than we really are going to know what to do with. And it was kind of a new thing. Had I really known what I was doing, I probably wouldn't have planted so much. But it's been fun and exciting. We've also been buying bulk beans. And again, you can get organic bulk beans and it's not going to break your bank. And, and you can store them for a while you, too. You can store them, but we've been, you know, soak them, soak them in a bowl for a while and then boil them and do some rice, and then we basically have, you know, kind of rack fixings so that when I'm getting ready to go to work, I can now bust out a wrap on my own and, and take that. I think the hardest step for people who um, maybe want to make these leaps but don't know how, it's, it's, it, it, it has to be a little at a time because it's really mm -hmm. a lifestyle change. Um, as, as aware and ahead of the curve as I kind of thought I was or felt like I, I, I was um, to incorporate like beans like you have to soak them overnight and we, we have a pressure cooker so you can actually process them boil them and stuff in about an hour but I have to plan that that's an hour out of the day so basically when I'm making breakfast I do that and then we kind of refrigerate mm -hmm. them so it's it's there are ways to experiment and have fun but you have to you have to plan for it just like a good exercise routine it has to be part of your lifestyle. And the idea, we really need to get away from the idea that um, food should be a thing of convenience. It's like everything else should be built around food and built around community. And that's really... Exactly, as it was and for so much of human history. Um, well, you guys also do some interesting things. Tell us about the goat chair. <laughs> <laughs> See, we even lit up with excitement, even when you say that, because it was so much fun. Uh, some friends of ours that Cassie knew and worked with, and this was actually a guy who got to the point where he quit that day job now. And yeah, they, um, they basically have a, an urban farm called Sewing Circle Farm, and they have three pygmy goats, and now two sheep, um, several ducks, mm -hmm. two cats. They're all very fun to visit. Of course, uh, we go for the goats, but they... Mm -hmm. um, they set up a system where uh, there's two milking shifts a day uh, through the milking season, and it's 8 a.m., 8 p.m., and it's you pay $2 a shift, and you sign up, and you have your you get all your milk. We got in one evening shift, we got enough milk almost for a week. That would last me through the week, yeah. and even though it maybe wasn't quite enough or what I was used to, it made me ration it a little more and I think also just in my own general trying to become more healthy when I quit smoking cigarettes which I think is worth noting right here the coming up Monday will be my one year mark July 15th um, I started drinking less coffee so I've used less milk in that coffee so I, you know I basically made the decisions like this is your milk for the week you know, and deal so with it. <laughs> it was great for our budget. It gave us, because at first it took us about two hours, and then we got down to about an hour. It can take a while to learn to milk. Uh, but it gave us time with the animals. It gave us time outside and kind of a quiet, because we're in the, an apartment that's pretty urban and kind of loud and trafficy. Um, so just, I found, I think we both found just having that quiet time a week spent with other animals just brought us a real feeling of peace. Mm -hmm. And then every time we drink the milk, we think of our goat friends. And, you know, um, it went on, it, it, essentially it went on to a point to where the owners kind of said, we have to, the, the goats need a break, basically. I was sad to see it stop and I'm really excited and hoping that they'll start another, 
another season. Ah, Portland. <laughs> well, even if you don't live in Portland, I'm sure that wherever you are, there are similar opportunities out there if you look for them. And if not, then that's certainly a market that's, uh, that could be filled by someone because there is definitely demand for this type of thing. Not only goat sharing, but of course there are all sorts of things. There are lots of milk sharing programs across the United States that of course the FDA will try to crack down on, but it's still incumbent on the people out there to find them, to use them, to support them, and to stop, again, paying your money to the corporations that are trying to insert bovine growth hormones and other monstrosities into your milk and into your, the food supply. So uh, once again, James and Cassie are talking about doing that in Portland, but I also managed to talk this week to Aaron Dykes and Melissa Melton of truthstreammedia.com, a relatively new website. I hope people have found this website and are checking it. They are putting out very important research on pretty much a daily basis. So I'll uh, put the link in the show notes, of course, to truthstreammedia.com so you can go and check it out for yourselves. But earlier this week, I had a chance to talk to them about a very important subject they did. They did some very important research on the subject of GMO federal labeling laws and how it looks like the biotech companies are conspiring behind the scenes with the USDA and the FDA and the usual culprits to make sure that whenever federal labeling laws are passed about GMOs in the United States, that they contain backdoors and exceptions, of course, to allow a certain percentage of GMOs to be slipped into all food products without being labeled as such. And of course, again, this is no surprise. I think we understand this is exactly the game plan that the globalist corporations use. They use the big stick of government to pass laws that then are selectively enforced on anyone who would be their competition, whereas the big globalist corporate insider corporations get the pass and they get to uh, put their crap into the food supply without so much as a second thought. So we talked about this extremely important subject and the research that they've been doing on this subject. And then at the end, we talked a little bit more about this idea of how people can start implementing this in their own lives and how it doesn't have to be an all-at-once, 100%, all-or-nothing purist uh, scenario, that it can be done in stages and people can wean themselves off of the big food system. So um, bringing us back then to, to the solutions and what people can do in their own kitchen to, uh, to control what's going in their own bodies, I guess the, there, uh, a lot of people are, are understand this intuitively, understand that this is the re really the solution, but are put off by the fact that this is such a huge change to implement. It's so much easier just to go to the supermarket and just pick up whatever kind of processed crap they're selling than it is to actually change your, your habits. What can you say about that? And for people who are discouraged by this, um, do, do they have to do it 100% all overnight or can they do this in stages? We're doing I, it in stages. I think it all starts with a step, and, and you know it's going to lead to something bigger. When you're picking out foods, if you get them locally, as local as your backyard, or if you get it from a supermarket, look for stuff that's going to help you build immunity. Look for stuff that's not going to clog down your digestion. Focus on clean sources of protein before you go to the carbs and the various wheats and pastas, because really that whole I grain think it's department... the majority of the middle of the supermarket, isn't it? That's basically all processed... And filled with crap. Sure. So start on the outsides. That's another good hint. And you heard Napoleon talk about uh, an army moves on its stomach. Well, a population also moves on its stomach. And those in power have been using food as a weapon for a long time. Feeding us stuff like grains, they found, basically works as an opiate. It keeps people uh, complacent. And it's, you know, it makes you hungry. It becomes it literally opiate of the masses. You also eat more. It works as an excitotoxin but in your brain. The type of foods you eat are going to determine, to a certain extent anyway, you're, the kind of behavior you're going to have and the kind of attitudes you're going to have towards the uh, social order. Well, and the, the thing about organic, too, people say it's too expensive. I can't afford it. I mean, it is all we really have right now. And so I would say afford organic now as much as you possibly can or try to afford the medical bills that you're going to have to pay later when you get really ill from all of this stuff. I mean, how it starts is it hurts people in their gut. It disrupts their gut flora. It causes their intestinal lining to break down. And when you have that going on, that's where nutrients first enter your body. And when nutrients can't enter your body properly in that area, then you have two to 300 different symptoms that can happen to you in a range of diseases. And I think that's why in a big majority, we're seeing like off the charts here in America, for sure, just everything is going up. Everything, every kind of disease, disorder, Alzheimer's, cancer. I mean, you name it. And it's bottom line, you up. want to stay out of the hospital at all costs. You Try really not to do. go there. And if you have to go there, get out 
literally minutes, seconds, as quick as you can. Allopathic medicine is not trying to heal you. It is trying to mask your symptoms so that you will come back for more later. I mean, that's really all it can do. But so. money, of course, as we know, is an exchange. And it's what are you going to ultimately put into your body? If you're going to use uh, money to buy entertainment and television, it's not really going to net you anything. Uh, it's probably going to harm you. You've got to be putting some things that are building health and longevity into your body, even if you don't want to live, at least so you can think straight. <laughs> nice. Uh, you know, it's some world <laughs> they've true. got. It's true. Well, an ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure, and that's absolutely the case for, for food as well. All right. Uh, well, we've, we've touched, I think, on all the bases. Anything else that you'd like to bring to the listener's attention regarding GMOs and what people can do about this? It's an incredible battle. Uh, I would cite, again, the words of founding father, Dr. Benjamin Rush, uh, well, I don't have his words exactly, but he said to the effect that if we don't institute the liberty of food and medicine to put it into our bodies, that individuals can choose and that it's an individual right, if we don't recognize that, it's going to become a food and medicine tyranny. And because we didn't institute that in the U.S., we've definitely seen that on the rise. And there is a medical food industrial complex. Pharmaceuticals are very much in bed with all of that. And they want your soul. They want your body. They want your money. And uh, I personally would disengage at all costs, if well, possible. That, and I think that people don't seem to realize that in the time of the Great Depression, things were really bad here. But a lot of people were self-sufficient. They were growing their own food. They had farms. Now we've got something like 96% of the population relying on the other 4% for their food. And that's something that people need to really think about because as that number gets smaller and smaller of the people producing the food versus the people depending on it, then the amount of freedom you have as to what goes into that food is going to become less and less. I mean, they've got things here now called food printers where you basically just put a glop in there and it prints out something that looks like food. I mean, eventually we're not even going to know what's being put into what we're eating at all. I mean, we barely do now. So we need to think about getting more self-sufficient on every possible level we can and even if you've got a small space, there are answers out there, lots of research that can be done for that. So that's what we're going to try and do, and we just hope everyone else will too, because the more people that do that, the less power this system has to control us with our food. Once again, Aaron Dykes and Melissa Milton of TruthStreamMedia.com. Well, we could go on and on and on talking more about all of the various aspects and ways that people can boycott or boycott, which is to give your money to a corporation uh, that you do support or a company or a local businessman that you do support rather than boycotting, withholding your money from that uh, from a company. But uh, we could talk about the numerous ways that this can be done and the numerous problems that this can help to alleviate or at the very least to withdraw our support from the, the people that are creating the problems. And this applies to so many different things. But of course, one of the most basic underlying fundamental points of all human interaction is the economy. We are connected through the economy and the, the connecting point, the, the thing that flows through the economy that connects us all, of course, is this money. That is the, the legal tender notes that pass for money in our day and age that we are told is the basis for our economic system. And it is not until we start questioning that and start boycotting not only the big banks, but the biggest banks, the central banks, and their monopoly stranglehold over currency and what passes for money in our day and age, not until we start boycotting that will I think we have the knock-on effect of being able to take it down the, the corporations as they come. So this is an exceptionally central point towards this whole operation, and nothing more important can be done than boycotting the Federal Reserve in the United States, or your central bank of choice, wherever you happen to be living, and the phony fun, uh, funny money notes that they pass as currency. And this, again, is an overwhelming task to think about um, because of just how deeply embedded everyone is in the fiat phony, funny money currencies that have been uh, forced upon the world. But again, it's the type of thing where we can start finding the, the pressure points and start withdrawing our participation from that economy and putting it into other alternative currencies. And this is an exceptionally, exceptionally fundamentally important point that I've talked about quite a lot on the program in the past, so I will uh, direct you back to some of my previous work. But why don't we take a look at a section of a GRTV video that I did recently on how to solve our fundamental economic problems by creating an alternative currency economy. Susan Witt prints her own money. I mean, this is really high quality paper. 
but she's no counterfeiter. These are Berkshires, the local currency she developed for southern Berkshire, Massachusetts. It's a tool to help local businesses compete against the growing number of chain stores. On the 20-unit note is Herman Melville. The notes celebrate homegrown heroes and the beauty of the local landscape. $835,000 worth of Berkshires were printed. They're as good as greenbacks in more than 200 shops. Nicholas can pay 30% of his tuition fees using TEM, a currency found only here in Volos. The local network for exchange and solidarity, which runs this new financial system, is based in the shop of seamstress Angeliki Ioanniti. Having an alternative currency isn't unique. There are similar networks in other parts of the world and more than a dozen here in Greece. But with 900 members and more joining every day, this is the largest in a country unsure of what money it will be using in a few months' time. A time bank is a way to give and get services without cash. Monica Kimball is the head of the Onion River Exchange in central Vermont. It's a great way to kind of preserve and to raise your status quo without having to pay for it. It's not a barter system where one person directly trades with another. Instead, people sign up through a website and list services they can provide and ones they want to get. For every hour you spend doing something for someone in your community, you earn one hour of credit. At the Onion River Exchange, there are 365 services being offered. In 1934, in the midst of the Great Depression, stores and small businesses in Switzerland created a new economic system. Separate from Swiss francs, they made a unique unit without interest called Vir and operated transactions. Though the system was born from Gazelle's theory, it stopped the issue of the actual bills and limited the transaction only within the unit's Vir. The operation as a whole is conducted by the Vir Bank and there are members throughout the country. Now, the Vir Economic Circle Cooperative is deeply rooted in the Swiss economy as a network of solidarity and includes 76,000 Swiss businesses, which make up 17% of all businesses in the country. What kind of more expensive items can you purchase or services with the $25 and $50? People can buy just about everything. Food, transportation, clothing, housing, all the basics, and also some arts and culture as well. A lot of our members who are on AISH or fixed incomes, they're able to supplement their income through the use of Calgary Dollars. So it's building the economy as well as a community at the same time. These alternative systems do not require a resolution to be passed in Congress or Parliament and do not require any wholesale change in the international financial order. These currencies already exist and are already thriving in numerous localities around the globe. Referred to as complementary currencies, they provide a way for communities to bypass the inflation tax and arbitrary confiscation that defines the modern era of central bank-administered currency. Just as the fiat money printed up by these central banks or issued as debt in the form of bank loans, are backed up by the collateral of the people's promise to pay later through the sweat of their own labor, so too can these complementary currencies be issued through the people's own labor. The difference being that in this system, the money is not controlled by banksters in closed-door meetings in faraway offices, but by the people themselves in their own backyards. One example of a complementary currency success story is the Ithaca Hours currency issued in Ithaca, New York. Launched in 1991 as a way to invigorate the local economy, Ithaca Hours have since facilitated millions of dollars in transactions and helped businesses and customers alike bypass the uncertainties of the Federal Reserve notes of the central banking economy. Earlier this week I talked to Paul Glover, developer of the Ithaca Hours system, about the project and how it has transformed the local economy of Ithaca. Well, 22 years ago in Ithaca, New York, I noticed that a lot of people, friends particularly, had skills and time that were not being employed or respected by the prevailing economy. And uh, while we had uh, much desire to create things and trade them with each other and many services we could provide to each other, we didn't have the money. 
So, since I have a background in graphic design, journalism, and uh, arrogance, I went to my computer and designed paper money for Ithaca, New York. I uh, designed pretty colorful money you know, with pictures of children, waterfalls, and trolley cars, and denominated in hours of labor. One-hour note, half-hour, quarter, eighth-hour note, two-hour note. And uh, then... Uh, began to issue to each of the pioneer traders who had agreed to be listed in the directory a specific starter amount. And the game began. An hour was worth, has been worth an hour of basic labor or 10 U.S. dollars, which at that time, 20 years ago, was double the minimum wage. People who usually expect more than $10 per hour of their service can charge multiple hours per hour, but the denomination puts between us as residents of our community that reminder that we are fellow citizens, not merely winners or losers scrambling for dollars. And uh, it, it introduces us to each other on the basis of these skills and services that we have that we are more proud to provide for each other than often is the case with a conventional job, just the stuff we have to do to get the money to pay the bills. So through that trading process, that more intimate scale process within the community, we're more easily able to become friends and lovers and political allies. Well, it is an inspiring story, isn't it? It's an inspiring story, and and uh, tell people about the, the how much how much money has circulated through this community. I mean, it's important for people to understand just how successful this has been. Because we are not a computer system, we don't have a specific volume of trading recorded. But by the grapevine, by phone surveys, and over the years watching the money move, we were able to guess very reliably, several million dollars equivalent of this money has transacted over those years, making loans without charging interest up to $30,000 value, which is the fundamental monetary revolution in our system, then as well making grants of the money to over 100 community organizations. So it has had a powerful cultural benefit, even greater, I think, than the millions of dollars equivalent value transacted. Now, similar ideas are springing up all across America and around the globe. From mutual credit systems to time banking to private currencies and social currencies, there are no shortage of ideas for how to transition off of the current system in a gradual manner while increasing and facilitating local trade. Last month I had the chance to talk to Wayne Walton, one of the organizers behind the Colorado Mountain Hours Complementary Currency, about this idea and how it is being implemented in the Summit County area. Exactly right. Well, let's let's talk about your specific example. You're there in Summit County, Colorado, where you have a number of businesses that are participating in this Hour Currency program. Let's tell people about the, the, the program that you've set up and how it actually functions. What does it look like when someone wants to, uh, to go out and buy a service uh, through this program? Well, I think the best place is to kind of start where the money is birthed. So the, the way we can create it as a credit is um, uh, Ezra Pound uh, says, uh, for instance, that um, money is a certificate of work done if it's issued as a credit. So what we do is we establish what is the value that we believe in our community. And we believe in our community, local independent businesses, that's valuable to stay in business under the threats of globalism. There's so many businesses that are running out of business because it's difficult because the dominant monetary system funds globalism at the destruction of community self-sufficiency. So we want to flip the pyramid. So we value that these businesses exist. So because they already exist, they have already produced the work. So we give them 20 hours just for raising their hand and saying that they'll participate and we give them, um, uh, that's equivalent to $200. So that gets them started, and they're, uh, by them, simply by 
raising their hand, we give them pieces of paper. When the business signs them, that's when it becomes money. Because we're trying to show people that their value is the money. The same way that earlier that the, the, those businesses created the IOUs with their signature, in the same way they're creating uh, these uh, credits uh, as, a, as a recording of work that has already been done. Additionally, whoever recruited that business, whatever individual, even you, for instance, if, uh, if you knew a local independent business here in Summit County or any listener, if you know any independent business here in Summit County and you get them to join, you get 10 hours because that is a certificate of work that you did because you have a relationship with a local independent business, you recruited them. So by doing this, we set up a self-sufficient, self-funding uh, barter network. You, uh, these new businesses are listed in a database, and they all just look to each other. Then they can go spend the currency with one another. As with so many other ideas for resistance of the status quo, the complementary currency idea is only as strong as the public's willingness to use it. Sadly, the comfortable inertia that the status quo offers is enough to keep many from even entertaining the idea of using a different form of money. But as the people in Volos, Greece, and other cash-strapped locations around the globe are finding, having an established complementary currency can help a community survive and even thrive in the midst of the economic chaos that we can all see coming. Just as currencies like Ithaca Hours and Mountain Hours have proven themselves to be successful, so have many complementary currencies withered away from lack of community support. But in this age of Cyprus-style bail-ins, debt ceiling crises, and the ever-looming risk of hyperinflationary currency death spirals, it is incumbent on all of us to identify and support, or even create, a complementary currency system in our own local area. For more on this story, and other breaking news and current events, please go to globalresearch.ca. For more research and analysis by James Corbett, please go to CorbettReport.com. If we could ultimately take out that fundamental leverage that they have over us with the, the phony money, the pa pieces of paper that they're printing up and passing off as, as money in our day and age, if we can remove that lever of power from the banksters, the oligarchs, the would-be globalist-connected insiders, then we have really, truly removed the fundamental uh, fulcrum through which they, they apply their leverage throughout the, all of society. And it's, uh, it would be amazing to think about if we, if we relied solely on alternative currencies, local currencies, community currencies, cryptocurrencies, what have you, then how would they even pay their enforcers, their goons, their, uh, their policemen and women in the jackbooted thug uniforms to come along and to, to try to put you in a cage for resisting their, their, their random dictates and decrees? It wouldn't work because, again, the currency itself would not be in their hands. That's an exceptionally important point. And again, the ramifications are almost mind-boggling to think about. So that's another key point at which we can start withdrawing our support from the system. So this is fundamentally the underlying point that I'm making today, and it goes hand in glove with the point that we're consistently making here on the Corbett Report, which is that you are a free and independent human being, and your actions do have meaning, and they do have value, especially when you withdraw your support from the system that you, uh, that you are raging against, and simply start putting that time, money, energy, and effort into something that you want to build up, whether whether that be an alternative currency, whether that be a local organic farmer, whether that be a, an open source software project that's creating something of value that you can freely download and uh, tinker with as you will that isn't, doesn't have a backdoor NSA booby trap access. So again, there are as many different ways to approach this topic as there are people out there who have different expertise in different areas. Everyone can contribute to this, the, the, these ideas and contribute different ways of boycotting the system and boycotting, buying into uh, products that are actually useful for us. 
So again, this is a huge topic and there's a, a million more ways that we could look at it, but we'll leave it there for now. But of course, I'm always interested to hear your comments. Please leave your comments in the YouTube video of this podcast, or of course, send your emails in through the contact form on CorbettReport.com. I'm eager to see and listen to how you guys uh, are personally boycotting the big Fortune 500 globalist CFR connected organizations and what you're doing to, to help support um, alternative and local businesses. We'll leave it there on that note. But once again, I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, saying that once again, this alternative media, of course, is supported by nothing else other than the uh, the the generosity and goodwill of the people out there. So if you are going to start boycotting the Fortune 500 cable companies or ISPs or what have you and, and shift your money into some healthy alternative media, well, why not uh, send a few dollars to your favorite alternative media producer? Not necessarily the Corbett Report, whatever podcast or independent media music or whatever you enjoy send a few dollars that way and help to build up some alternatives we'll leave things there once again i'm james corbett of corbettreport.com thanking you for joining me asking you to join me again next week i boycott everything that's not made by my hand my hand my hand i boycott everything that's not made by my hand my hand my hand then if i have to i'll build myself a cardboard The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's international forecaster editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.